Job chapter number 42. And I'd like to read just the first six verses of this chapter. And, and then really, I mean, I guess I'm going to preach a message. Really, I just want to exhort you a little bit tonight in the Lord. Job chapter 42, verse number 1. The Bible says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be here. Speak to hearts. Magnify the Lord Jesus. Teach us and grow us in your word and in your spirit. And Father, I pray that you'd receive glory for everything that is done tonight. Lord, we love you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice with me in particular verse number 5. Job says this, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. Job was a spiritually, and we maybe could say scripturally, although I'm a little cautious in saying that because we understand Job to be uh, recording the, uh, or Job to be the oldest book in the Bible. I, uh, but I believe there's always been, God has always had someone uh, that recorded down His truth and His Word. And while He may have not had a Bible like you and I have a Bible, certainly He had the witness and truth of God in His life. And so I don't think it's too much to say that He was both a spiritually and scripturally educated person. He said, you know, all of my life I have heard of God. Uh, he knew of God to such a degree that he had this relationship with God that was probably more fleshed out and developed than any other man living in his day. You say, preacher, how do you know that? Well, because he was the most righteous man uh, on the earth. He was a man that was upright, that eschewed evil. He prayed, he sought God, he heard from God. Uh, his life was characterized by a robust relationship with God. But I'd have you to notice tonight, within all of that, all he could say about that period of his life was that he had heard of God. He had heard of Him. He had heard from Him. He had spoken to Him. But something has changed in the life of Job. Uh, when we come to the close of the book of Job, this last chapter, Job now changes his uh, opinion or his description of his relationship with God. He says it's been taken to an entirely different level. It has transcended the way in which I knew God before. He said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. And that's been my whole life. But he said, you know, ever since the devil came by to wreck my life, now mine eye seeth thee. In other words, he says, I knew you and I knew of you and I knew about you, but now I have come to see you for my own self. Uh, you know, it made me think when I considered Job's statement here, in describing the change in his relationship with God, that he had heard about him from others, that he had heard about him from the witness of, of, of Scripture and of the testimony of God. But now he says, through everything I've been through, through everything I've experienced, now mine eye has seen thee. I don't believe Job, by the way, was talking about seeing him with the physical eye. He went on to say in another place in the book of Job that when he died, that then in his flesh he would see God. But the Bible says that no man has seen God at any time. And so when Job says that he's seen him, I don't think he necessarily means that he's seen him with the physical eye, but rather that his spiritual perspective has been developed in such a way that he can rightly say that he has seen what God is like. Now, when I think about the book of Job, I think of it as a book that is characterized by much suffering and much uh, self-deprivation. 
It is not the story of a man that experiences the lavish blessings and benefits of life. At least that's not the majority of it, but rather it is a book that is uh, characterized by loss and by uh, suffering and by affliction. And it made me think about this thought tonight. You know, I, I was watching a little bit of the Tennessee football game the other day, just a little bit. I didn't watch all of it because uh, I quit watching them. Amen. But I just, I, I wasn't even watching. I was just in a place where it was on. You know how it happens. And, and, and I happened to watch just a little bit of it. I was thinking, oh, how the mighty fall. Amen. And uh, <laughs> we live in a day now where, you know, we, we, we beat, uh, you know, Bowling Green and say, well, glory to God, it's, it's a W. Amen. <laughs> That's sad, isn't it? And um, I was thinking about all the poor people that bought tickets. And if you're one of them, I'm sorry. That was your choice, not mine. But that paid money to go and watch that football game. And, uh, you know, I was reading an article the other day about college football, how it's suffered through the pandemic and how things have changed. And a lot of folks have just sort of uh, given up on it. And they say that the price of football tickets has fallen precipitously. I mean, there's some colleges. I'm talking about Power Five conferences where... Tickets to a ball game can be had for one, two, three, four dollars. And uh, I remember a time when I was young, you pay $75 to get a ticket to go to a UT football game. Uh, now they'll pay you to take them. Amen. <laughs> I remember a time when somebody said, hey, I got some tickets to the game. You want them? That meant something. You know, now it's kind of like an insult. Like what? You can't throw away your own trash? Amen. And I... <laughs> And I thought about how proportion, proportion, the price of admission is to the relative experience. The better the experience, the higher the price. You know, the converse could often be said to be true. The higher the price, the more meaningful the experience must be. I thought about Job saying, you know, I've heard about God all my life, but I got in and I got to see him. And this is coming at the tail end of the book of Job. And I, I thought about all that it cost him. To get to see God. I thought about this. The price of admission. What does it take to see God in our life? Now when I'm talking about seeing God. I'm not talking about seeing Him with the physical eye. Praise the Lord. One day I will see Him with the physical eye. But I'm talking about spiritually seeing God. Seeing Him work in my life. Seeing Him work in your life. Seeing Him glorified and magnified. Seeing the evidence of His power and of His working so vividly and expressively that just like Job, though he hadn't seen Him with the physical eye, he wasn't lying when he says, mine eye had seen me. I want to see God so clearly in my life that I could say with Job, hey, I've heard about you, but now I've seen you. What's it going to take? What's it going to cost us to get the price of admission paid? I thought about Matthew chapter number 5, the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord Jesus says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If we're going to see God, our heart is going to have to be pure. Let me say, I don't believe that is merely speaking positionally. For every born-again believer, their heart has been purified by the blood of Christ. But I don't think it could rightly be said of every believer that they really see God working in their life. He is working, but we don't see it the way that we ought to. So I'd say that our life has to be purified. Our heart has to be purified. You cannot take it for granted that just because you're born again, your relationship with God will be everything it needs to be experiential. Now, it's true that your standing and station with God is perfectly sufficient. But let me go ahead and say tonight, though, I may be everything in the eyes of God, 
that I need to be by the blood of Christ. I'm sure not everything in my own eyes and practically speaking in my life that I want to be. I need to be doing more. You need to be doing more. We need to be pursuing God. What's it going to take to see God work in this way? When we look at Job's life, I think there's a few things we could mention. And I'm just really going to mention them. I ain't going to preach them. I'm just going to mention them. But some things that it took for Job. Job was the best Christian on God's earth, but he said, I've not seen God. Don't take for granted just because you got a relationship with God that you've seen Him the way that He ought to be seen. Don't take for granted just because you go to church that you're seeing God work in your life. Don't take for granted just because you read your Bible that you're seeing God work in your life. Don't take for granted just because you pray that you're seeing God. I'm saying there's more and we need more and we so desperately need to see God in our lives. You know what's wrong with our nation? Uh, Christians aren't seeing God in their life the way that they used to. What's wrong in our churches? We don't see God. We see each other. We see the Scriptures. We see ministry. We see opportunity. But somehow in all of it, we don't see God the way that we need to. What's it going to take? I want you to think about this with me. Let me say number one tonight. If we're going to see God, what's the cost? What's the price of admission? What's it going to cost you? Number one, it's going to cost you some suffering. The book of Job is a book characterized by suffering. We could summarize Job's suffering experience with just four verses in chapter 2. There's more we could read, but let's just notice these with us. Uh, verse number 7 says this in Job chapter 2. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. I don't know that there was ever a man other than the Lord Jesus that suffered to the extent that Job suffered. A man that literally lost everything that he had. Can I make a statement about the good grace of God? If Job could have seen God, if he could have got to chapter 42 verse 5 without the suffering, then you can be certain that our loving and precious God would have spared him of it. The fact that God put him through what he put him through tells me he had to go through what he went through to get where he wound up. Your life and mine, and I don't know what the measure of it will be. I don't know what the manifestation of it will be. But I know this, that suffering, we get to know the Lord in the fellowship of His suffering. And in that fellowship and in that suffering, we see more clearly who God is and what He has done for us. Job made some incredible statements in the midst of his suffering. Some statements that I don't really, and, and I don't have to know and understand everything. I'm growing more and more comfortable with that uh, as, the, as the years go on. I'm getting old this week. Amen. 33 is young. 34 is old. And I'm getting old this week. If you ask me next week, 35 will be old. Amen. But as I, as I continue to walk through this, this world, I, I, I would say this, that in our life and in the suffering that we experience, uh, we begin to learn more clearly and keenly the love that God has for us. A person can't really understand the love of God until they experience at least a touch of suffering. If Job could have got where he wound up without it, God would have spared him of it. God, was the only person that hated Job's suffering more than Job. God felt every bit of it. God understood every bit of it. God knew every bit of it. But in that, Job had some transcendent glimpses of who God is. He made statements about the Lord, things that 
I don't understand how he could have known them except God showed them to him through his suffering. He would say things like, I know that my Redeemer lived. Who even knew at that stage in human history uh, that there was a Redeemer? Uh, he had read Genesis 3.15 like you and I, but who could have made such a robust statement as Job when he said, I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. He says that uh, though after uh, my skin worms devour this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. I'm talking about he understood things that theologians are still mystified by. How'd that happen? Well, he saw God in the midst of his suffering. He learned God in the midst of his suffering. I don't just mean he learned about Him. He already knew about it. But he walked with Him. He fellowshiped with Him. And in the midst of that, he learned something about who he is. Don't begrudge your suffering. That's hard not to do. None of us understand the suffering we experience. But trust to the heart of a loving God that He wouldn't put you through it except it was the only path to where He needs you to be. He wouldn't let you go through it except it's the only path to where He needs you to be. It costs him some suffering. Number two, it's going to cost you some steadfastness. Let me just simply make this observation. God showed up at the end of Job's trial. He didn't show up at the beginning. He showed up at the end of it. What would have happened if Job had given up? He wouldn't have made it to chapter 42. Now, you can disagree with what I'm about to say, uh, but when Job's wife says, Dost thou still retain thine integrity, curse God, and die? I don't believe that she was needling him. I don't believe that she was casting scorn into his teeth. I don't believe that's what she was doing. I don't believe that she was scoffing at him. I think she believed that the only thing that kept him from dying was that he continued to trust God. And I think in her broken heart of seeing him suffer, she felt like, well, if he'd just curse God and give God an excuse to smite him, to take him out of this world, and he wouldn't have to suffer in the way that he did. In other words, I think we have good scriptural authority to say that had Job not remained steadfast, he wouldn't have made it to chapter 42. If his life, by the way, which is a lesson, not in his faithfulness, but in God's faithfulness, in a sovereign God bringing riches out of a suffering experience, had his life no longer fit the mold for being the, the prototype of that, then his suffering would have been needless and pointless. And God would have probably taken him out of this world. He probably wouldn't have blessed him twice over as he does by the time you get to chapter 42, for he would not have blessed Job's sin or Job's disobedience. And probably the best thing God would have done at that point is just said, all right, Job, I'm not going to let you suffer anymore. So he only got to chapter 42 by staying faithful to God. Now, I don't believe Job's a perfect man, and I'm glad that faithfulness and perfection are not the same thing. If I had to be perfect to be faithful, I couldn't be faithful. Some people are never faithful because they define faithfulness as perfection. And then they say, I can't be perfect, so don't even try to be faithful. Faithful does not mean you're never going to make a mistake. Faithful does not mean you're never going to speak a word amiss. What faithful means is once the smoke clears from all of you, you're going to get back up and keep on serving God. Job was a faithful man. The Bible says in Job chapter number 1, after he hears the death of his children, after he hears the destruction of his riches and his wealth, and Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now listen to what God says about that. God through the Holy Ghost, and God the Holy Ghost says it this way, In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. doesn't mean Job was not a sinner. 
But it does mean in the midst of his suffering, he purposed in his heart that he would continue to trust God. He even says it later on, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. In other words, you don't have to understand everything about God to see God. You just have to trust God. He goes on to uh, down in verse number uh, three of, of chapter two. Listen to what happens. Listen to what the Lord says to Satan. Now, this is after Job has lost almost everything in his life. The only thing he still has is his health. And he's about to lose that. Listen to what the Lord says to Satan. He says, Hast thou considered my servant Job? By the way, if you're familiar with the book of Job, you know that's a rerun. That's how this whole thing started out. Satan saunters up to God and says, Hey, I'm doing what I want. I'm running this world. I'm controlling everybody I want to control. I'm doing as much as I want to do. And the Lord says, Well, you ain't controlling Job. And the devil can't handle that. By the way, let me just say this. Authoritarians can't handle dissent. Authoritarians can't handle dissent. If it's just one person not in line, uh, they'll move all of hell against them to make that person bend and bow. That's a satanic quality. The devil's that way. The devil was willing to move all of hell against Job, even though Job was the only man walking the earth that refused to bow, that refused to bend. But to an authoritarian, that's too many. One is too many. They'll do whatever they have to. And so uh, he pours all of this on Job, all this suffering, all this devastation. Job stays faithful to the Lord. And so the, the Lord just, he just runs a rerun on, on the devil. He just says, hey, I ain't changed. Hast thou considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. God's opinion of Job had not changed. Let me say, I hope that if God has a good opinion of me, and I pray that he does as far as my life and my faithfulness, I hope that suffering don't change God's opinion of what my life is like. Notice what he said, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. I want to be one of those Christians that still holds, that still holds. You want to see God, you're going to have to be one of those Christians that still holds. I'm not talking about to be saved. I'm talking about to see God in your life. It'll cost you some steadfastness. But most of the time, God shows up at the end of our trials. I said, preacher, how do you know that? Because that's when our trials end. Do you hear me? That's when your trial ends. It's when God shows up. And so, definitionally, God's going to show up at the end of your trials. Not at the beginning. Not at the middle. It's not that He's not there. But if you're going to see Him, when you're going to see Him, you're going to see Him at the end of the trial. It's going to cost you some steadfastness. Number three, it's going to cost you some searching. Listen to what it says in Job 42 too. Job makes this statement, I know that thou canst do everything. In other words, God's omnipotent. God is all-powerful. There's nothing He cannot do. Notice how Job describes the measure of that omnipotence. He says, and that no thought can be withholden from me. Here's what Job learned, and it enabled him to see God. He learned that God, through that experience, was searching him out to expose who he was, both to himself and to God. God already knows what we are, who we are. But often, if we want to really see God, we're going to have to allow our life to be searched out, to be tested. We're going to have to allow the sincerity and the truth of it to be exposed. Sometimes it takes a little sifting to see God. And that's what Job experienced. Job was searched out by his company of friends. I put friends in air quotes. What do they call them? Scare quotes. I put Job in quote, his friends. I put that word friends in quotation because they weren't very friendly. And often... In the midst of your devastation, it'll be the people that you love the most and the people that say they love you the most that'll gather around you to search you out. 
And that wasn't, I don't think, their intention, at least not at the beginning. But pretty soon they decided they could help old Job by trying to ferret out and search out everything that was wrong in his life. Now they meant it for ill, but God meant it for good. Ever dawn on you that sometimes the people that are hardest on you are the instruments of God in your life? And it doesn't mean they have good intentions in what they're doing. But it means that a sovereign God uses people in that way. He was searched out by his company of friends and with friends like Job who needs enemies, right? Uh, with friends like Job, people that surround you, people that claim to be friends, but oftentimes they'll betray you, they'll hurt you. And through that experience, we can either direct our ire and our vitriol and our rage at them or recognize the hand of a sovereign God behind it and ask ourselves, what's God trying to show me through this experience? He was searched out by his company of friends. He was searched out by his companion, his wife. She asked him questions nobody else had the courage to ask. She knew things about him no one else had the insight to know about. I don't think it's too much to say that Job's wife had the best read on the entire situation. I think she more understood what God was doing in Job's life than Job did. I think she more understood what would happen if Job behaved in this way or behaved in that way than Job did. And I think she knew more what Job was about to do than Job himself did. I don't know that Job thought himself bold or resilient enough to hang in and hold on and trust God. But his wife knew that left unto himself, he was going to keep trusting God. And her answer reflects that. And I say, nobody knows you like your spouse knows you. They know things about you don't nobody know about you. They know things about you that you don't know about you. Because they watch your life. And very often, God will use that to search us out. He was searched out by circumstances. Uh, he made this statement. He said uh, of the Lord that He knoweth the way that I take. When He hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Now, there's two statements we could make about that. Let me just go ahead and make the next one right now. Not only his circumstances, but he was searched out by his Creator. And I would say this, that the Creator used his circumstances to search him out. Uh, nothing that happens in your life or mine is just happenstance. It's not accident. That's what pagans believe. Bible believers don't believe in, in chance, happenstance. That's a pagan belief. Uh, we don't believe in destiny. We don't believe in fate. We don't believe in luck. We don't believe in happenstance or fortune. We believe that God is in control of everything. That's the biblical worldview. And as such, we are then compelled to recognize that our circumstances are not by accident. And what is God trying to do with what you're going through? What's He trying to teach you? What's He trying to, uh, to show you? There were things that were brought to the surface of Job's life that would have never been exposed in the midst of pleasure and leisure and prosperity. There are things in his character, good and bad, that bear forth that only the pressure of his affliction would have ever brought out. If Job comes forth as gold, it is only because certain things have been purged out of his life. God uses our circumstances uh, to search us. And in all this, it's him that's searching us. He's trying, and that's what the psalmist prayed, that God would search him, that he'd try him, that he'd see if there'd be any wicked or unclean way within him. Let me say that if you're content to know God on a superficial level, I'm talking about saved people tonight. I'm not talking about somebody lost or somebody thinks they're saved but got no biblical reason to believe they are. I'm talking about people saved by the grace of God tonight. You want your relationship with God to be more than superficial, you're going to have to quit being so polite with God and start getting sincere and honest. You're going to have to be willing to hear hard truths from God 
You're going to have to be willing to get honest with your broken heart with God. Go ahead and say what's on your heart. He knows what is there anyway. Because often He's doing the things He's doing in our life to get us to get serious. And I don't mean serious in the sense of dedicated. I mean serious just in the sense of being truthful. Being truthful with God. It's going to cost you some searching. I'd say not only will it cost you searching, it's going to cost you some silence. Job had to be silent for God to speak. Job chapter 31 verse 40 reads this way. It says the words of Job are ended. And there's another fellow that shows up, talks until God speaks. And let me just say, I, I don't ever want to be, and, and God help me, I, I'm sure I have been. I don't ever want to be the type of preacher that just talks till God speaks. I'd rather just be quiet and let God speak when he's ready to speak. But this other fellow shows up and he runs his mouth for a while. And finally, God sits him down and God begins to speak. God begins by asking questions. And He piles question upon question upon question. All of them rhetorical. All of them not just rhetorical to Him, but even rhetorical to Job because they're so obvious that Job doesn't even have to answer. Uh, the answer is transparently uh, uh, apparent before Him. But none of this happened while Job was speaking. None of this happened while Job was talking. Listen to what Job says in chapter 40, verse 3 through 5. And by the way, this is, this is Job's interruption in God's uh, course of speaking. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? He, the only thing he says is this. He says, I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. He said, Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. You know what that means when he, when he says that? Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice. Uh, but I will proceed no further. He's saying once was too many. And I had nerve enough to speak twice. In other words, he's saying, I guess it's time for me to just hush and listen. Often in our relationship with God, we spend so much time trying to tell God what He ought to be doing in our life. And we never take the time to get silent and listen to try to understand what God's doing in ours. We learn that through the Word of God, through the reading of the Word of God. But I'm not even really talking about reading the Bible, although, of course, that is the means of discerning God's Word and, and God's voice and God's will. But I'm just saying we live with such a manic, frantic spirit and attitude that we never stop long enough, give God enough time. You know something I hate? I do this. I'm bad about this. You know this if you spend any time around me talking to me. I hate people that cut other people off in their conversation. And I hate that about myself. I do that too. Isn't that right, Ken? Anyway, the, the point is, I have a bad habit of doing that. You know, so often we cut God off in the midst of His, of His sentence. What I mean is God's doing something in our life and instead of stopping and waiting and just trusting Him and doing what we know is right and serving Him, we jump the gun and try to, to assume what God is going to tell us or want us to do. We cut him off mid-sentence and wind up being wrong about the whole situation. I'd say it's going to cost us some silence. Sort of like the psalmist said in Psalms 131. He says this, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Now listen to what he says. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. You know what a weaned child learns? A weaned child learns that silence is not abandonment. A weaned child learns that even though mama leaves the room, she's not left your life. 
And the psalmist learns this. I can trust God in the quiet times. I can trust Him when I can't see Him. I can trust Him when I can't figure Him out. I can trust Him when I can't find Him. And that's what Job says. Job says, I look in front of me, but He's not there on the right hand, on the left hand, but I can't find Him. He says, but He knoweth the way that I take. You know the thing that the weaned child learns and understands is I don't know where Mama is, but she knows where I am. You know the thing Job learned through this experience is I may not know where God is, but He always knows where I am. It's going to cost you some silence. It's going to cost you some soberness. He says in verse number 3, Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? By the way, that that statement is profound. I could preach a whole message. We could spend time just digging in, burying in. You know, I've always said, and I'm going to back up on it right now, I've always said that the greatest thing that Job did in his sufferings is he never gave the devil credit for any of it. But I'll say this, we might have an exception to that statement. When he says, Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? What he is saying is this, who's the one hiding truth from? Who's the one that I've let pull the wool over mine eyes? He says this, therefore, because of that, I understood, I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. He goes on to say in verse 6, wherefore I pour myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job had to see himself as God saw him before he could see God as God is. It's going to take soberness in our life. We're going to have to listen to what God says about us and accept it to be true, even when it's painful or even when it does not seem to reconcile with our opinion or our perspective of ourselves. That's a basic fundamental tenet of humility that we somehow have lost in modern Christian culture is being willing to accept what God says about us as true. Job says, I've been running my mouth about things that I had no way of knowing, and now I see how foolish I was. It's going to cost you soberness. Not only that, it's going to cost you supplication. Verse number four, Job says this, Here I beseech thee and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. He's describing a prayer life. Saying, God, hear what I have to say when I speak. And God, I'll listen when you speak. You know, Job didn't see God until he stopped talking about him and started talking to him. All through those verses, all through those chapters, the constant, continual topic is God. That's all they're talking about. They're talking about what God expects out of man, what God sees in man. They're talking about how man relates to God and and, and what God will require of him for righteousness, how God blesses people, how God purges people. All they talked about was God. And they come to the end of it and they don't know any more about him than when they began. The reason, and listen, I, I'm, I, I'm a preacher. I'm a teacher of the Word of God. I like to think so anyways. And, and I love it. I love to study it. It's precious. We don't really, we learn about God, but we don't really learn God except by talking to Him. We learn about Him by reading His Word. But we learn Him. Learn Him in a personal relationship by talking to Him. If you're going to see God, you're going to have to spend time in communion and fellowship with Him. It's going to cost you some supplication. And finally, I'd say this. It's going to cost you some sweetness. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, look down at verse number 10 of chapter 42. The Bible says the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Again, we could put that word friends in quotation, couldn't we? They had not been very friendly to him. But he had heard instruction that God had given to them to go to Job and that Job would pray for them. And Job knew what his responsibility was. 
Even though they had treated him so poorly, even though they had abused him and afflicted him, he knew that God expected them to pray for them. And that's no surprise. The Bible tells us we ought to pray for our enemies. Not just pray for folks that accidentally hurt us. Not just pray for folks that hurt us while they're trying to help themselves. But pray for people that hurt us for the purpose of hurting us. Our enemies. It's what an enemy is. An enemy don't do what he does because he's trying to help himself. An enemy does what he does because he's trying to hurt you. The Bible says we're to pray for our enemies. So preacher, those that incidentally use us knows those that spitefully use us. Those that deliberately use us. Job's closest friends were some of his cruelest critics. But Job saw God and Job's captivity was turned when he prayed for his friends. He could have answered them in kind. I would tell you what I would have said to them if they had been my friends, but I think the FCC still has some say in what's broadcast over the parking lot, so I won't. But suffice it to say that most of us would struggle to pray for folks to do us the way that Job's friends did. Preacher, why should I have to pray for them? Why should I forgive them? Why should I love them? One very simple reason. Do you want to see God in your life? He says one of my requirements is you've got to be like I am. You've got to love those that hate you. You've got to love those that despitefully use you. I wish I could tell you that the moment you get saved, you are guaranteed to have the greatest experiential, practical relationship with God irrespective of your level of commitment. But I'd have to lie to you to tell you that. Here's the truth. You can get born again and coast. We got a whole nation full of people that do it. They get born again and man, they're saved because they weren't saved because God was thought they were a good draft pick. That ain't why he saved them. He saved them out of his grace and mercy. And they get saved and then they just coast. But those people don't see God. They don't see God working in their life, their kids' lives, their grandkids' lives. They don't see God in their churches. And others don't see God in them. Because there's no presence of the Lord in their life beyond the bare minimum of what God through His precious promises guaranteed. There's no experiential power and presence of God in their life. We need to see God. But there's a price of admission. Are we willing to pay it? Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. And I want to give you an opportunity to come to the Lord. I can't promise you that everything that needs to be fixed in your life is going to be fixed with one trip to an altar. But I can tell you that fixing those things is going to begin with the trip to the altar. I can't promise you there won't be work to be done afterwards. You see, the work isn't finished up here. It's begun up here. But that's the very truth of it. This is where it begins. With the bowing of our head and heart and the bending of our knee before our King and saying, Lord, I I desire You. I want Your presence in my life. I want to see You. And I want You to have glory through the way that I live. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.